Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I want to start this week off by sharing what sources are saying. What are sources saying? Are we gonna are we gonna break news here on the podcast? Uh, I don't think so. Hmm. Woj already beat us to this one. <laughs> sources: Alex Rodriguez, Mark Lore, finalizing a deal to buy Minnesota Timberwolves and WNBA's Minnesota Lynx. Our man, Hell yeah, he got his win. Got his org. He finally bought his club. He finally got it done. I just want you know we had to start out. By giving proper shout out, proper congratulations to the man, Alex Rodriguez, on making a lifelong dream come true. Being on the other side of the player owner relationship. <laughs> <laughs> when did that switch flip? You know? Like was he halfway through his Yankees contract and oh, he was late. that seems late. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it when he gets traded to the Yankees? Is it when the the Rangers just give him a boatload of money and he's like, okay, I see I see why owners are the good guys now. Yeah. Like when, at that point, is he like lobbying his fellow players to take below market deals? Do you know when he collected his first rent check on all of the properties that he purchased <laughs> while he was still a player? You know, because he like his first foray as the lore goes, as we've talked about on the show before, is that he bought some real estate properties and started renting them out. So Alex Rodriguez, my landlord. Yeah. So like I relatively I probably, early on yeah, in like his career. 03, right? Yeah. So I think that like that's probably when he had designs on becoming an owner, not a player. Props to him honestly for how well he still played while thinking about his post-playing career of ownership. Yeah, like you're going out there and you're just thinking about the tenant in 4F, you know, yeah. who just is like causing a ruckus and won't we got pay rent one that empty, month. We got one out of eight empty units and we're bleeding money because of it because the margins are slim, you know, mm-hmm. and from what I hear. In, uh... Yeah, you're being <laughs> hit with vacancy taxes. Like, <laughs> um, Can I read you a paragraph from Mark Lore's Wikipedia page? Mark Lore, the guy that actually is bankrolling this purchase of right. two sports teams because Alex Rodriguez, all the money that he has along with J-Lo, the whole conversation when he was going to purchase the Mets was that they didn't have enough money to actually buy the Mets. So their offer had to come along with like a whole ownership group and MLB decided to go for Steve Cohen's offer because Steve Cohen is the richest owner in baseball. And, you know, we, we know that MLB loves money. But hey, here's a, he's, he's a billionaire of the mind, you know? Maybe not in... Uh, in the bank yet? Step to become a billionaire. Like, one. You need a, billionaire mindset. B. C. C1. C2. Okay, from Mark Lore's Wikipedia page. After stepping down from Walmart, I guess we should say what Mark Lore did, which is that he sold his Jet.com business to Walmart for $3.3 billion mm-hmm. and then became the CEO of Walmart US e-commerce so he was the ceo of walmart's e-commerce brand i I feel like that pays well 
I don't know, though. What do you think? I think, I think they're doing all right for themselves. I think so. After stepping down from Walmart, Recode reported that Lore's latest, latest project will be a, quote, multi-decade project to build a city of the future supported by a reformed version of capitalism. Wow. What does that look like to you? City of the future, reformed version of capitalism. It can't be that different from how MLB is imagining the future of baseball stadiums. That, you are so right about that. Yeah, this... Uh, I don't know, man. City of the future probably looks something like Palo Alto, right? Where you don't have to see any of the pores. Yeah. You've pushed them all to the outskirts. Right. You know, same with a place like San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, this is... It's great. I'm having a normal one when I tell a Recode reporter that my next project is a multi-decade one to build a city of the future. Definitely not high on my own supply. My definitely not high on my own supply shirt is answering a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to say that. People are asking a lot of questions about whether I'm high on my own supply that are already answered by my yeah, definitely not go. high on my own supply t-shirt. <laughs> you know, I I really... I, at the end of the day, you have to respect the commitment to the bit here. You know, I think a lot of billionaires are too cowardly to say, I just want to build a modified version of capitalism for the city of the future. And Mark Lohr is doing it. <laughs> He's doing the damn thing, pulling himself up by his bootstraps and, you know, codifying like exploitation into the fabric of society. Yeah. As if it's Even not more so than enough. already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, for the listeners at home, the ones who really care about the A Rod bit that we have kept going for for quite a while, I just want you to got. I just want you to Google image search Mark Lore, and then Google image search A Rod and see why their partnership exists. They, the guys dress exactly the same. They definitely have the same sensibilities about what it takes to become a successful American businessman with a very, very expensive sport coat and, and a high and tight haircut and no tie. You know, it's 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 uncanny. Tough look for Mark Lore when, at least on my search engine, when you Google Mark Lore, it's only pictures of Alex Rodriguez. Congratulations to A-Rod. I, for one, am just happy that it was not the Mets. <laughs> yeah, true. You know what? He got his nut, and we we all should be celebrating it. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, the growing movement to repeal MLB's antitrust exemption. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even keep a straight face during that. We're going to talk about foreign substances on baseballs. We're going to do three up, three down. Uh, but before we do all of that fun stuff, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. You are listening to Tipping Pitches. Okay, Alex, this is going to be a tricky conversation to have given our 45-minute rule regarding one. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a new listener of the show, you just heard a loud bleep and you don't know why, but he is the pitcher that the Dodgers signed for $40 million a year in this offseason or whatever the hell they decided to pay him. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported this past week that MLB removed two baseballs start against the Colorado Rockies during opening week uh, for inspection. Against the A's, too. <laughs> against the A's as well. Uh, for inspection for foreign substances, which are banned by Major League Baseball, 
And this year they announced that they will be cracking down on that use of foreign substances. Now, I just want to say MLB's decision to crack down on this right now is weird without providing a sort of alternative to it. This has been something that's been going on for the entire history of baseball. And just this year, they were like, well, we really, really want to crack down on it. And we're also not going to give pitchers any kind of league-approved substance that they can use for grip other than the rosin bag, which almost no pitcher actually uses. And if you do use, you're kind of a weirdo. So it's weird that this has become such a big story this early on in the season. It's like one of those MLB stories where it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that it was going to become a problem because they were like, we're going to make this a problem this year. And then it did become a problem already. First off, I think that should be celebrating this given his support for law enforcement, for law and order. Yes. Just wearing out the bleep button on this episode, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Apologies to our producer. That poor guy. Second of all, extremely funny, given that has spent the last year basically saying, let's legalize pine tar, right? This man's history with foreign substances is being on the Reds and raising some eyebrows at the Astros' high spin rates and saying there's virtually no way for them to well, have being achieved on Cleveland, this. he was saying this even before he was on the Reds, yeah. You're right, yes. And then he wrote an article basically in the, he obviously tweeted a lot perpetually, writes an article in the Players' Tribune that basically said, I have tried to get my spin rate up and I've concluded that the only way to really maximize this is to use a foreign substance. Then he made t-shirts that said the words legalize pine tar. And now he's being investigated for some possible crimes that he's done regarding foreign substances. Yes. So there, and also the thing that you left out was there were a couple instances throughout his career where after saying that there's no way to increase your spin rate through training, no way, no way to increase your spin rate this much through any kind of training or off season driveline program, anything like that. Obviously he's very, uh, deeply embedded in that sort of driveline off season worry about my, the saber element of my pitching repertoire. He's very deeply invested in that community. Um, he, after claiming that there's no way to increase your spin rate without using some sort of illegal substance, uh, there was then one month in 2018 where his spin rates jumped a lot. And he kind of winkingly was like, I don't know what you're, what you guys are talking about. And then all of last year, his spin rates were way up. Like yeah, to the just skyrocketed. To the he was he went from in, being in the bottom third of the league in spin rate to being the number one overall pitcher in spin rate on his fastball and curveball last year. So obviously he was, I mean, allegedly, but obviously using something to increase his spin rate, whether that was something that everybody uses, like pine tar, like the thing that he decided to print onto a yeah. t-shirt. This man's is like writing is like OJ Levels writing a book saying, if I did it, if I, here's what it would look like if I used pine tar. Yes. And, and then going out and winning the Cy Young off of it and then signing the largest contract by average annual value for a starting pitcher ever. Um, people have complicated feelings about him being the first person to sort of like, for, for it to kind of come out that MLB is investigating on this. And he... And his representation, Rachel Luba, are suggesting that 
he's being targeted by Major League Baseball uh, because I don't really know what they're theorizing is the reason that Major League Baseball would want to make a scapegoat out of him. Um, I guess because he's been whistleblowing on it for years uh, and that the leaks are coming out as targeted leaks to sort of paint him in a bad light, in a worse light than other pitchers who have also had umpires take balls out of play for further investigation. And to, to all of that, I say, and to the sort of element of them being like, why is Ken Rosenthal writing this? Why is Ken Rosenthal blogger <laughs> writing this piece? Gossip columnist. Um, I, it's just reaping and sowing. Like, it's just the reaping and sowing tweet. And it's also just a basic concept of newsworthiness that they don't seem to understand. You're in the news about this because you made news about this for the last four years. Right. You've been yelling at Major League Baseball to do something about this. You have been daring them to act. So so who are they going to think is a more interesting story when they take the ball out of play? The guy who's been saying they should ban these substances or they should legalize the substances or Michael Waka? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it seems obvious to me. And, and, and an element of this that we can't let go unsaid was what our friends at Southpaw Sports tweeted, which is, it would be funny if they suspended Trevor Bauer for doing this, so therefore they should just do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Local man who is daring Major League Baseball to investigate players for cheating says, I never thought they would investigate me. <laughs> yeah. And there is obviously, I, th- I think the larger point here is that they are most likely trying to make some sort of an example out of the- because they've said that they are going to crack down on this. Obviously, like, nothing has happened. They were inspecting his baseballs, in part because I think he was at kind of, I mean, he has been the face of this conversation for the last couple of years. And so there's an understanding that this might ruffle some feathers, word is going to get round about this. Ken Rosenthal is obviously a mouthpiece for the league. So that's all oh my God. <laughs> worth taking into, cons- some accusations into consideration. some against Ken Rosenthal here. Damn. Just call it how it is. <laughs> yeah, he obviously had the inside track here. Yeah, I mean, and again, nothing, is, nothing has happened. He hasn't been suspended. Would it be funny if he was... Yes, maybe does it kind of obscure the conversation about whether these substances should be illegal or shouldn't be illegal? Yeah, there's maybe a bit of misdirection here. And I know that you have some thoughts about pitchers using foreign substances to increase their grip on the ball, namely that they maybe should just be allowed to. Yes. Because yes. why not? Uh, send me <laughs> one of those batters shirts. do. Legalize Pintar. Well, <laughs> this this strikes me as one of one of many, 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 many uh, a novel's worth of examples of MLB creating a problem for themselves. And I know I kind of alluded to that earlier in this conversation already, but there, there is a very obvious solution, which is just approve a substance that everybody can use and it gives pitchers enough grip to where they feel like they can hold the ball well, but not enough grip to where they can go- take their spin rate from the bottom of the league to the, to the top of the league. Like, should pitchers be allowed to use pine tar? I don't know. Because I've never been a Major League Baseball pitcher. I don't know if that is the thing that pushes it over the edge. Maybe it's just bullfrog sunscreen. Or maybe it's just some version of whatever the clubhouse attendant in the Angels 
for the Angels was making that got him fired and then got Garrett Cole investigated because Trevor Bauer blew the whistle on it. Maybe it's something like that, but there has to be a better way than just guys putting pine tar on their neck like Michael Pineda and the umpire coming over and dabbing his hand on his neck and being like, you're out of this game. There, there just has to be a better way than that. And I don't see why. So you're, so you're saying they're just not cheating well enough? No, I'm like saying efficiently they're enough? cheating for no reason because <laughs> everybody is doing it. Right. And it's it's not like PEDs where it might hurt, where, where some people might not want to use them because they're worried about how it might affect their health like later in their life. Like I can understand from a league-wide health morality perspective where you would not want to just legalize all you know anabolic steroids and then like Ryan Brousseau doesn't want to take the steroids so he's just the worst hitter in the league now. Like, and I'm I'm naming Rays because the Rays game is off to the right of my screen right now as we record this podcast. But you know, any guy who doesn't want to take the PEDs then becomes at a at a competitive disadvantage. But I don't know if there are any pitchers who would be like, I don't want to use a substance to help me grip the ball better. Don't you think every pitcher would want to use that? And if they didn't want I mean, to use and it, probably are. If we're being honest, like exactly. a majority of pitchers use. Or this sort if of they stuff. didn't want to use it, it would be because they have a specific reason not to use it. Like for example, some guys I know it might give them like a blister because it might make them grip tighter in some spots and create kind of hot spots on their hands. But MLB weirdly being like pretending for a hundred years like this wasn't going on, and then the next day. Being like, wait, we're going to start to enforce this by sending spies into the clubhouse and taking balls out of play to be sent to a forensics lab is the exact kind of example of Rob Manfred's leadership of MLB being like, suddenly it's time to enforce the rules and to change rules. And it's that technocratic approach that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks that has created this problem out of thin air. And then it's just a catalyst for all of this. He is just an accelerant in the entire situation because of how loud he's been about it on Twitter, by selling shirts, by doing it for a season and winning Cy Young. Like, he is the accelerant to this whole situation, but he is not the person who set up the, you know, chemistry experiment if we're running this analogy into the ground. Yeah, and the context for this is that strikeout rates are skyrocketing, and Major League Baseball, as an, as an institution, is, I guess, not in favor of strikeouts as we've seen. And so, like you said, they're going to do what they can to kind of eat away at the margins a little bit and say, how can we kind of tamp down on this as much as we can by going after a, a, a written rule that is largely ignored, but that everyone is kind of seemingly okay with, including maybe batters, because at least the pitcher isn't going to hit them with a ball that slips out of their hand. Like, I don't know what comes next from here, right? Like, this is one news item. My my guess is nothing actually happens to And the story goes away for a couple weeks, a few weeks. Yeah. But it's definitely worth keeping an eye on because it's something that Major League Baseball has explicitly said they are going to be taking a closer look at. Uh, the thing that bothers me about Sorry, the strikeout. <laughs> you better stop, bro. The thing that bothers me about the strikeouts element of this, though, is that we're operating on the presupposition that that pitchers just that using grip is making the strikeout problem when pitchers have been using this for decades and decades and decades. So clearly there are other factors that we could press on other levers that we could pull other than this weirdly 
specific rule that they want to want to suddenly enforce. Like we're not getting more strikeouts because pitchers are using pine tar. That was happening in the 80s. It's happening in the 70s. It's happening in the 50s. It's happening in the 40s. You know, like pitchers are getting better because they're being trained from a younger age and because we know more about how to train pitchers. And they're throwing more strikeout stuff and getting more strikeouts because batters are okay with striking out more because they're also trying to hit more home runs. So it it just, again, feels like reaching for a solution for a problem, reaching for a convenient solution for a problem for a rule change. MLB institutes all of these rule changes trying to fix a problem, not even realizing that one, it might not fix the problem, and two, it might create a whole entirely new subset of problems. And when you approach the game from that element of not letting it work itself out, of not realizing how decades and decades of different types of player development and self-selecting for different types of players has created the version of Major League Baseball that we have today, that's where you start to get yourself into these weird, tricky, dumb stories of pulling baseballs out and accusing Ken Rosenthal of being a league-sponsored blogger. Because like now we're in this weird vortex of the world that MLB has created by being like, well, we can change things all of the time and it will just fix all of our problems. But clearly it doesn't. They set off a weird domino effect of events that leave us here talking about it on a podcast. Damn. Calling Ken Rosenthal league sponsored blogger is like real worst person, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but he didn't actually say league sponsored blogger, but <laughs> right No, but you know, gossip columnists, I think we should make t-shirts that say league-sponsored podcasters. <laughs> I don't uh, think anyone would believe that. Should we move on? Let's move on. Should we talk about the Supreme Court and <laughs> antitrust laws, baby? Yeah. Can you intro this one? Because I'm tired already. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm running out of energy. Well, so this comes on the heels of the, the news that Major League Baseball is pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta based on the the new Georgia law that will um, severely basically restrict voting access. We talked a bit about this, about this last week. Conservatives are, you know, have basically been having a a week long shitting of their pants over this. As per use. As per use. MLB got pulled into the slipstream of the culture wars. (laughs) And the the general political reaction to this among some of our nation's foremost lawmakers has been, well, we should revoke Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption that they've had essentially from the 1920s on. Yeah. That has basically protected them uh, and their ability to operate as a monopoly in the U.S. without really any sort of oversight. And there's actually a law, I believe, that is going to be a bill that's going to be introduced this coming week that has little to no chance of uh, passing. Oh, is that true? I didn't even know that part of this. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to talk about this because I can't escape it on Twitter. That's how I come up with topics. Not, I don't actually check what's coming through. Uh, Yeah. HRB, whatever. (laughs) Oh, no, man. The Teddy Roosevelt Fair Competition and Public Trust Act of 2021. And it's just about MLB? Seems like that's not the biggest antitrust problem that we have in this country anymore, (laughs) you know? (laughs) We sort of let a few other ones get larger than MLB, but the reason that I wanted to talk about this with you is because 
last week when we brought up when we had the discussion about MLB moving the All Star Game out of Cobb County, we just kind of a throwaway line at the end. We're like, and a couple Republicans are joking that, or are saying that they want to take away the antitrust exemption, and we're like, don't threaten us with a good time. And now it's more than a couple of Republicans, and as you just noted, it's actually being put on the Senate floor or the House floor. Yeah, the House floor, I guess, or you know, whatever committee. <laughs> as if it this matters. Is in yeah, right. Again, like this, there's there's zero chance of this passing, but it is an an interesting moment to kind of take a look at MLB's unique position in this space because they they are afforded far more protection than any of the other major sports leagues. Yeah. Which whose exemptions mostly relate to broadcast deals. Right. I don't know, Bobby, how do we feel about this? Would would revoking the the antitrust exemption for Major League Baseball be be good? What is it what does it mean? What is what is antitrust exemption? Can you imagine if I was like, no, we need we need them to have the exemption? <laughs> no. So I mean the biggest question that I wanted to talk about is what would actually happen if right. this bill passed and what would happen if they took away the antitrust exemption. And the largest thing really applies to the minor leagues, right? Because the minor leagues and the draft, right? Because the existence of the antitrust exemption essentially allows major league owners to collude with each other, not necessarily to collude within the collectively bargained major league baseball, but they can collude as much as they want for anything that is not governed by a CBA. And that would be every other element of baseball other than the players union. So intellectual property, minor league wages, location of teams, et cetera. Even like salaries for, you know, employees who are not union protected, like who work mm-hmm. in like the business the marketing departments or whatever. Like if every MLB owner suddenly was like, we're furloughing, you know, if the Yankees owner was like, we're furloughing all of our employees because of COVID, I think you guys should too. And then all other 29 teams did it. That would be illegal in every other industry, but it's not illegal in Major League Baseball because of this antitrust exemption. They can collude amongst each other as much as they want. That is what the Supreme Court said. Um, so, I think that getting rid of the antitrust exemption would be amazing. <laughs> like, it would have... It, it's like accidentally left wing, you know? Where then suddenly minor leaguers would have such a stronger case for trying to prove collusion amongst the owners to suppress their wages to the point where they're below minimum wage. I actually don't know how this would affect this, the Save America's Pastime Act, which exempts minor leaguers from minimum wage, but it would give them a lot of different legal avenues to pursue cases against Major League Baseball owners that, like, frankly, there's enough evidence out in the public that Major League Baseball owners would have broken the law if not for the antitrust exemption. Yeah, there's already a lawsuit against Major League Baseball um, that is alleging that they violated the Fair Labor Standards Act. This would also allow them to say, hey, you've colluded to suppress wages. You have, it, it allows players to say, hey, you've colluded to suppress wages. It allows minor league teams to say, you have colluded to, you know, lock us out of specific markets. You haven't given us a say in this. I want to, I want to take a step back just for a second and, and like really break down how ridiculous it is that 
MLB has this exemption in the first place, like what the rationale was, right? So, so this is like federal antitrust law regulates interstate commerce, basically, right? That is kind yeah. of the, the and I quickly want to say, you and I are both pulling from a wonderful piece in NBC Sports written by Craig Calcaterra. Before we even get into it, I, I I don't know if you're gonna read any paragraphs from this piece or anything like that, but Alex and I sat down and read this piece together over Zoom before the podcast started. So that link is in the description. And Craig yeah. Calcaterra is wonderful and maybe we should just invite him on to talk about this in the future, but here we are now. Yeah. I'm also there's a there's a piece in Sportico, which I feel like as we talk more and more about the business of baseball, we're gonna be pulling more and more from there. Yeah. Uh that kind of breaks down how we got to this point. Um Basically, we don't have to talk about the, the history of how Major League Baseball got to this, right? Because it, it goes into the proliferation of, of baseball as a sport uh, across America in the early 20th century. and The concentration of it amongst the larger leagues. So the American League and the National League, as we know now, is Major League Baseball. But there were other leagues at the time. There was the Federal League. There was a couple other smaller leagues. The Federal League was actually the one that sued the American and the National Leagues for basically colluding to destroy them as a competitive business, a, a competitor to the AL and the NL, which is right. illegal in all industries unless you have an antitrust exemption. So MLB right now could be like, we don't like the indie leagues. We want to crush them. And they are allowed to do that. They just don't bother to because like there are too many small indie leagues and MLB is already succeeding enough. But if one of those cro- indie leagues cropped up and was actually a competitor to them, MLB owners could all get in a room together and say, how can we destroy this league? Which you can't do if you're in another industry, even though this all seems like a sham that we're talking about this because fucking the tech sector does this all the time, you know? And the oil sector does this all the time. So antitrust law here is is a fucking joke, but here we go. It's explaining the history of how it relates to MLB. Yeah, I mean, and the, the rationale for all of this from the Supreme Court was that baseball games are not interstate commerce they're not business that occurs over state lines because the game <laughs> is played in one state there might be many games going on across the country that are housed under one business that does business across all of these state lines but the sport itself you you cannot argue bobby <laughs> that <laughs> is throwing baseballs across state lines i don't know man if Giancarlo Stanton really gets into one in Cincinnati, he might hit it to Kentucky. <laughs> You're kind of right about that. <laughs> um, Not enough people are talking about this. I mean, this was the 1920s that this ruling was made, and it was aggressively just a pro-owner ruling at the time because there are teams in all in a bunch of states, um, and the teams have to travel across state lines and do commerce and business. But right. now it's just even more ridiculous. Like I open MLB TV and I look and I click on where I want to watch and it like does that United States geographic map verifying mm-hmm. that I'm not in New York and it, my dot pulls up in California and it's like, whoop, there's some interstate commerce happening on my cell phone. Yeah, it really makes no sense. This was, as you said, this was just a, a handout to owners. Baseball was becoming a booming business at the time and the courts were basically like, well, we've we don't want to be the ones to rain on this parade. So sure guys do the, do the baseball, how you want to do the baseball. That's, you know, we can't, we, we will, it won't be a part of that. Um, one of the original federal league filings when they sued, uh, organized baseball, when they sued the AL and the NL, the judge in that case was, um, 
none other than Kennesaw Landis, the guy who would eventually go on to become the commissioner of baseball. So I wonder if he ruled fairly in that one. Not sure. I'll let you guys decide. Um, I just think that there's a there's a cultural version of this conversation happening amongst these Republican lawmakers. And then there's the actual money side of this, which I think you and I are more interested in, in how MLB has continued to protect themselves by keeping this antitrust exemption. Because there's so much money on the line. And the way that you know that is because they continue to donate to people who will protect this antitrust exemption. And yet, like the, the irony of it is that all the other sports leagues have not enjoyed this level of protection and have still managed to grow and become incredibly profitable sports leagues. So like at the end of the day, would the bottom line be negative Im- negatively impacted? Yeah, probably, maybe. But baseball already has an implicit monopoly on, or MLB already has an implicit monopoly on the sport as it is, right? right. So Yeah, and that's what's so interesting in folding in the minor leagues conversation to this too, because that is the element that they would be fucked on this. Yeah. And it's also part to go back to a conversation we had with Randy Wilkins. It's part of, it's part of the reason and the legal defense for the way that the MLB draft exists, because if you draft a player into a colluded market where they're not protected by a union until they make it to the majors, in theory, in other competitive markets, what should be able to happen is that the Mets draft a player and they're like, we're going to pay you jack shit. And another organization could come in and say, we'll pay you more. Just don't go to the Mets. Yeah, you're just basically operating like an individual job seeker, right? Yes. You're going around to each team and saying, who's going to pay me the most? Okay. The reason that the draft can exist like this in other sports leagues is because those drafted players are then part of the union, which negotiated, among other things, for the draft to be the way that players find out what teams are going to go to. Because the owners held out and they're like, this is what we need. We'll give you X in exchange for it. And in Major League Baseball's case, when you get drafted to a team, you're not protected by the union, so you're not governed under a CBA that says the draft has to exist this way. The reason the draft exists this way is because MLB has an antitrust exemption and can say, we can draft these players to go to our team and no one else can negotiate against us. So there are a lot of complicating elements. A lot of them relate to how minor league baseball operates. And a lot of them relate to more complicated things about geographical exemptions, which I actually don't really know enough to talk about intelligently on this podcast segment. Yeah, well, the only thing I'll say on the the geographical aspect is that's another space where... MLB has a big advantage when there was talk about moving the A's to San Jose. It ultimately didn't end up happening because it was, you know, that was considered part of the the, the Giants part of the state because there was a minor league team there that was an affiliate of the Giants and and the and the city of San Jose sued MLB and said, "You're denying us this opportunity to have a major league baseball team," and they lost. Because Major League Baseball has the antitrust exemption to do whatever the fuck they want with where the teams are, right? They have they have created the rules. So this would, it would really change the landscape. Again, not going to happen, but it is fascinating that, like, I don't know, the horseshoe theory is real on this one. Yeah. Um, okay, while we're talking about the minor leagues, there's one thing, one other thing that I want to mention that we saw on Twitter as it relates to minor league baseball. Uh, it's un—I mean, un- unconfirmed. Like I haven't seen it reported wide or like a big 
thing about it yet, but there's speculation that MLB may not allow minor league players to stay with host families this year, uh, which, if that is the case, is a is a gigantic problem because of how prevalent the host family system is in the minors. And I don't know how much how specifically we've talked about this on this show before, but essentially when you're a minor league player, you don't have enough money to pay for your own housing in a lot of instances. And so what ends up happening is that host families offer to let minor league players stay with them for the part of the season that they're actually playing uh, because of a, a community bond around a minor league baseball team, one that runs very, very deep in a lot of cases to the point where they will let a player literally come live in their house. I mean, I don't know what's more personal than that, but you know, seeing speculation that this that MLB might not allow this this year, and I should say it's because of COVID protocols. Which, I mean, obviously there are serious implications to the idea of minor leaguers staying with, uh, of staying with host families and then transmitting the virus to other players and it creating serious problems. That is a genuine and understandable concern. But if you say, "Hey, minor leaguers, you can't stay with host families this year because of that," it would seem like you should also be forced to provide some additional compensation. For them to then go acquire their own housing and the fact that you've created a problem so drastic that players need to stay with host families and then you're not willing to address it when you have to roll those host that host family policy back i just think is just another example of a lot of the elements of what we just talked about with the antitrust exemption they collude to get it to this point and then they don't actually want to solve any problems for people um so i i'm we'll see if that actually ends up being confirmed as the policy this year and if it is i don't know we should probably bring on a minor leaguer to talk about that i don't find someone who has that lived that personal experience of staying with a host family or um or who has been a host family so i, I don't know it's it's yeah, ridiculous it's a really interesting kind of informal infrastructure that has been somewhat formalized that has kind of risen in the minor leagues in part because of the the nature of their work and the the travel that they're doing and in large part because of the sub you know sub minimum wages that they are paid i mean it's a really it's a really fascinating part of the minor league ecosystem that i think we haven't really explored enough that like kind of both both parties, both sides benefit from it. Like it is a really interesting aspect of the relationship that minor league teams have built with the the cities that they're in. And I think that that's something that kind of gets taken for granted sometimes. I also have no idea how major league baseball would regulate this sort of thing or minor league baseball would regulate this sort of thing, right? Like you could also just say, yeah, no, John and John and uh, Georgia over here, I'm paying rent to them. They're not my host family. I'm just renting this apartment from them for free. I just marvel frequently at MLB's ability to power through their actions in the minor leagues from a PR perspective. <laughs> like, And I just don't understand from a from like a better business bureau perspective, why they don't see the value in providing a level of security to these minor league players 
to where they feel safe, to where they feel secure, to where they feel monetarily compensated to the point where they can focus on baseball. Because we're talking about margins of money that are like a bad, like a reliever who gets injured contract at the major league level just to make it all better in the minor leagues. And, you know, as far as I can tell, it's so much more deeply rooted. It does relate to what we just talked about with the antitrust exemption, that they went this far to negotiate this level of power lording over the minor leagues, lording over all of the things that they can rig and control. And they're just not willing to give that power up on principle, not because it's actually going to screw them financially. They're like worried that on principle, giving up some element of power will start to pull a thread that they will then lose entire entire control of. And then they'll have to reevaluate their entire business model. And I just don't, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't see how you can look at a situation like this and, and see that, minor leaguers are having to be revolved around it to host families because they can't afford to pay for their own apartments in small towns across America while you rake in billions and billions of dollars from a TV contract for a kid's game. And you're like, this is cool. This is fine. Can't relate. Okay. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and when we come back, we're up to them. Starting with up or down this week. You know, let's start. Let's start down this week. Okay, great. I'm ready to go. First down. Okay. Instant replay. <laughs> specifically, back on our bullshit. Specifically, as it pertains to the a ridiculous game that was Mets Marlins on Thursday oh, afternoon God. with the Conforto leaning into the hit by pitch that was in the strike zone. Uh, if you watched it, I'm sorry you had to watch that dumb game. If you just saw it on Twitter and saw a lot of people being mad, that they were probably appropriately responding to what that was, was it? Yeah, that was that was it. That was the game. Baseball game where the bases were loaded and Michael Conforto kind of leaned into a pitch that was like up and in, but it was still technically in the strike zone. He stands very close to the plate, um, and it hit him on the elbow pad, and the umpire started to ring him up, and then was like, "Oh, the ball hit him, so I'm going to call it a dead ball, and I'm going to send him to first." Uh, if a pitch is in the strike zone, <laughs> it goes without saying that it can't hit the batter. <laughs> yeah. They're illegally placed. That breaks the rule. So they go to review, but the umpires and, you know, the boot, the, the announcers are saying this the whole time. Like they're not going to overturn the call. It's not a reviewable play. Right. Well, whether- and it's unclear whether they, it was even review, right? Like I, the sense that I got was that they were just calling headquarters being like, what are, what are our, our recourse here? <laughs> like, well, what can we do? I think they technically went to review because Mattingly was like, go review it. He clearly yeah. leaned into the pitch. It was clearly in the strike zone. Mattingly, the Marlins manager. And they went to review. And then the guy on the headset was like, sorry, we can't review intent to lean into a pitch. That's not part of the jurisdiction of instant replay review for whatever reason it's a judgment call as if you shouldn't be able to review judgment calls and he leans in it hits him and as far as i can tell what they reviewed was whether the ball hit him which it obviously did hit him not whether he leaned into it or whether he was leaning over the plate and intentionally getting hit with the pitch so all of that to say again technocrat rob strikes again where we have this policy that was put in place to solve a problem and then like the scope of the policy 
does either doesn't go far enough or it creates a subsequent problem that they will then need to put in another policy in place to solve. It's like a it's like a the hydra where you cut off one head and two different heads pop up <laughs> and you're like what it's am like, i supposed to do about with this? this? Yeah, it's really funny that like they instituted instant replay so that they could start getting more calls right. And, and functionally what it's done is they replay review stuff and you see how it was wrong and it then slows you can't things down, it. you see things are wrong and then you're just kind of like, well, that's not within our jurisdiction. Sorry guys. But at least everyone knows that the call was wrong. Yeah. And to his credit, the umpire behind the plate came out after the game and was like, yeah, I blew it. Like, should I call it a strike? And I, for one, am like maybe almost overly sympathetic to umpires who I think, generally speaking, have a pretty hard job and are constantly scrutinized by millions of people. So, like, I mean, far be it from me to be like, you got to hand it to the umps. But, wow. you know. It's hard to see. Look at you. It's a it's a it's a fast moment. But I, again, blue like, no matter who, Alex out here. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, real blue lives matter. Hours. <laughs> uh, but right, exactly. Like the the point of setting up this infrastructure is to provide some sort of checks and balances. And if those checks and balances can't oh even overturn, God, like constitution constitutionality, Alex over here. No, you're right. Another element of this is that when they have instant replay review, umpires are more likely to make a weird call and then be like, I'll just review it. I, I don't care what you say. Like in their head, they, they say, I'll make. They don't know in the moment to me whether or not this is a reviewable play. So he just calls it dead and he sends him to first. And then instead of going and meeting with his fellow umpires like he would if there was no instant replay review and overturning the call like they would if this was literally or whatever. The first op- the first thing that they think to do is to go over to the headset because Mattingly is coming out and yelling at them to review it. So it's, there's this chaos ensuing, and now we've come to rely on instant replay review, and in instances when instant replay review can't fix everything for us, we're screwed. And we get, a, we get a scenario like Thursday where the Mets walk off the Marlins in the dumbest possible fashion. Baseball's back. <laughs> okay. We're living. We're thriving. What's first down for you? Uh... First down for me is that Dusty Baker is just having to eat shit for the Astros just every single day. This man does not deserve it. He is a baseball legend. True. Absolute king. And he's having to go out there, basically, and defend the team that cheated that he had no participation in, right? He just has to be the good corporate stooge. And fans are getting particularly creative with how uh, with how they're heckling the Astros this year. I'm sure many of you saw that there were inflatable trash cans thrown onto the field. I think at one point there was maybe a real trash can was thrown onto the field. There's lots of booing. There's lots of signs. There's lots of t-shirts. I support the real and, trash can. Got yeah, to hand it to him. <laughs> and Dusty Baker comes out and... And says this week, he says, you can tell the amount of hostility and amount of hatred in the stands. How many people in the stands have never done anything wrong in their life? We paid the price for it. We paid the price for it, right? Once again, Dusty Baker was not a part of this scandal at all. But, you know, being the good worker that he is, he's going out there and defending the honor of his, you know, McKinsey-sponsored baseball team. Alex comes out, defends umpires, and then defends a manager. <laughs> it's on the wrong side of the labor battle this week. 
I gotta say, I gotta say, I love Dusty. Everything that you said about him, I cosign. I plus one vehemently. But for him to be like, it's a sad situation for America to me when you hear things like about the sign stealing scandal. I there are a lot of sad situations for America these days. Yeah. Fans throwing out a blow-up trash can onto the field because the Astros cheated is not a sad situation for America. Yeah. We're not talking about people being, like, wrongfully jailed here. He can be like, it's a weird vibe at a baseball game or something like that. You're, or he can be like, it's it's overly negative for something that's supposed to be a celebratory moment when we're playing a, a baseball game together and it's an entertainment product and it's supposed to be family friendly fun you know he can make that argument but when he goes like it's a sad situation for america he lost me a little bit yeah yes absolutely agreed there i wish dusty baker wasn't the face of this but dude could maybe be a little more tongue-in-cheek about it uh okay next for me every single time mlb tv goes to commercial Every single time. Yeah, our weekly MLB TV rant. Let's go. Let's get it. No, it's not even MLB TV's fault this time. I'm letting him off the hook this week. This Chevy commercial, co-opting the speech from Field of Dreams, is a fucking travesty. I can't believe they sold the rights to that speech to Chevrolet. Has anybody at Chevrolet watched that movie? Has anybody listened to the speech that they put in the commercial? Because the speech is literally about, quote, America rolling on like an army of steamrollers, which, you know, if you watch the rest of the movie and you think about the James Earl Jones character in Field of Dreams is kind of talking about how capitalism has wrecked everything, knocked it down. And the only thing yeah, that stuck Field around of Dreams is anti-capitalist. James, James Earl Jones's character <laughs> is literally anti-capitalist. He's a novelist who is like anti-war and like a pacifist in the 70s, you know? So like for him to give this speech and be like, America rolls on like an army of steamrollers, destroying everything in its path. And the only thing that stuck around and remained pure is baseball is the claim that he's making in the speech, which you know every single word to. And I could ask you to do right now, but I'm not going to. And for them to use just the first couple lines of that speech. And then at the end of the commercial for it to be like Chevy and then move (laughs) on. I'm like, I, the first time it's I saw that, so I was annoying. I was like, "Oh, this is kind of cute. Ooh, this is this is." I thought it was going to be a regular just an MLB arms, TV, like, like an MLB commercial, like yeah. MLB. Never good when Chevrolet is doing your marketing better than you are. It drives me up a wall, and you know it's just going to play every single time we go to commercial for the whole season. Yep, and I'm going to hate the speech by the end of the year if I don't already. Yeah. Capitalism uh, co-ops every good thing in the world, including every good thing in baseball. Uh, what's next for you? We got a lot of vaccine truthers around the league, huh? That's I don't I don't really got a much much of a take here, but uh, man, really really showing their cards on this one. Yeah, Major League Baseball players are. Yeah, I. I think case in point is probably just said this and everyone listening to this is probably thinking of a different player. I thought of Karen Check. I thought of Karen Check too. That is the that is the 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 poster child of this story for the last I mean, when week. you come out on your Instagram and say that getting a vaccine is like what the Nazis did. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different level of showing your ass. Mhm. Yeah, something is going on in the Cleveland clubhouse 
We need to shut it down until we figure out what's going on. Like, please do not let Zach Plezak and James Karinchak go to dinner anymore. I don't know. I thought you were just going to end the sentence there. Please do don't not let, let them. Zach Plezak and James Karinchak, period. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a disaster and wildly indicative of the different types of worlds that the different types of socio-demographic worlds that people come from to get to Major League Baseball and the beliefs that are reinforced along the way. Yeah, and it's tough when, like, by and large, the league and the union, the players' union, are pretty much like, no, yeah, you guys should get vaccinated. Like, it's, yeah, yeah, we get it, personal choice, but, like, guys, come on, really? You're you're not serious, right? Like, you're going to get the vaccine, right? Guys, please, come on. Big props to the players who got it, like, after the game and, like, were willing to be part of the, like, photo op for it and tell people, come to get the vaccine. Like, you know, the Yankees and Mets players, because City Field and Yankee Stadium are both, you know, uh, mass vaccination sites in New York City. Like, they were offered the vaccine after their first home game. I guess as, like, employees of the the location? I don't really know. But they, they sort of turned it into a PSA. And, yeah, I mean, that was cool to see. Like, hell yeah, get the shot, get those shots in arms. You and I got you and I got the shots in the arms. Yeah, man. Living out here. I love the guys who who which is actually most of the, the the players. The ones who are saying they won't get it aren't even saying they won't get it. They're just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's a personal choice. And when the time comes, uh that's a decision that I'll make. But I respect everyone's ability to make the choice. But for me, it's a it's a personal choice. So I'm not necessarily gonna gonna comment on it. But you know, this is America. <laughs> right. So like the, the implication being that it's a personal choice, but you can't say whether it's a personal choice that you will be affirmatively choosing to get. <laughs> this is not gonna be a HIPAA violation <laughs> if you say I'm not getting the vaccine. Or like, if you are least, getting the or, vaccine. Or if you are, exactly. Yeah. Regardless. I don't care where you stand on it, just I don't know. Stand behind your words a little bit. I'm not saying I got to hand it They're to James Karinchak like- <laughs> or Eric Sogard's wife for like floating conspiracy theories. You do not but- under any circumstances have to hand it to Eric Sogard's <laughs> wife. Um, no, I mean, it's the, yeah, they're treating it like the question was, what is your social security number? Well, right. it's a person. It's a person. It's a private in- information. Um, okay. My next thing is, uh, it seems like there's a prol- proliferation of stadiums going cashless, both in major and minor league baseball. Uh, City Field is one of those stadiums. And as a Mets fan, I say full-throatedly that that fucking sucks and it's stupid and it's exclusionary and teams should not be doing it. Not really another take to have. Not everybody carries around a credit card. Not everybody carries around a debit card. Some people just prefer to have cash. And it's like such an unforced error because you know for a hundred years people have been walking around selling hot dogs and taking cash back and i know that they're guising it under the sort of covid post-covid world of like not all transactions wanting to be contactless and you could but like first of all not every credit card transaction is contactless you do sometimes have to hand the card to the person and they have to put it in the credit card reader so just as much sort of um from an epidemiology perspective, just as much germ. Yeah, they're handing you the food. Like <laughs> They just prepared the food. And, you know, specifically as it, re- as it relates to COVID, we've learned that from surfaces, it's a lot less likely to 
um, contracted than from just like standing next to each other. So it's not, it, it doesn't really hold up from that perspective. It just seems like the type of thing that they wanted to do anyway as a way of, I don't know, speeding up the process and like leaning fur- further into this sort of digital world that digital technological world that MLB seems like obsessed with capturing and not really understanding the impact of it on anything other than the ideal customer that they envision coming to their ballpark. Mm -hmm. The real city of the future is Yankee stadium, (laughs) just cashless, lifeless. It's a lot of concrete packed, no masks, just vibes. A lot of very rich business people in suites. Yep, that's and paying twenty dollars for beer. You know, that's uh-huh. that's a lot of fun. It's capitalism reinvented. Okay, uh, what is your God, capital, capitalism's been reinvented? Capitalism has rolled on like an army of steamrollers. What is your final <laughs> down has. this week? <laughs> My final down this week is one that may not uh, stick around, but it's just Tatis. the The potential of him being hurt in any way at all, not great. He had a partially dislocated shoulder on a because the dude swung too hard. Fernando Tatis Jr. is so good at baseball that he's swinging himself out of his own body. You know, like, dude, it's okay. The baseball is still going to be there. You, you can just get him the next time. I don't know. These days with this, with this uh, pine tar and velocity, it might not still be there, Alex. It's going right by you. Mm, true. Is Pintar leading to uh, Lux- subluxated shoulders? Yeah, sub- subluxated shoulders. I, jury's still out. Yep. Uh, anyway, he's he's going to be back sh- shortly. It sounds like he's avoiding surgery. He could be back as soon as next week. But obviously, we're sending all our best wishes to to him. I also think it's funny that uh, that Fernando Tatis is the first Padre we've talked about on this podcast this week, given that another one had a no hitter but <laughs> well that was my first up this week I, I kind of wondered if it would be up <laughs> yes that's my first up this week but before we do before we do talk about Joe Musgrove uh <laughs> poor Joe being pushed all the way back to the 70 minute mark of the podcast behind Trevor yes. Bauer who's been bleeped 17 times yeah um this is the third podcast that I've had to talk about this this week uh Fernando Tatis dislocating his left shoulder just like your boy right here did the same thing dislocated shoulder his was partially dislocated and then back in. Mine was fully dislocated. I'm I'm concerned for Fernando. Yeah. Because when you opt not to get the surgery, like what what the MRI revealed was a, you know, partially damaged labrum, which is the thing that I tore, which I then needed to get the shoulder surgery for. But when you opt not to get the surgery, what you're saying is I think that I can rest and rehab this to the point where the labrum is then strong enough to hold the shoulder in the joint. And I know I'm getting like kind of grizzly here, but strong enough to hold the shoulder there and for this not to happen again. And it's just, it's candidly from what I've been told by medical experts who, when I had this exact problem, it's hard to guarantee that. And for a guy who swings so hard, plays so athletically, is in a lot of bang, bang plays where he's diving with his arms out every direction. I'm nervous. I'm really nervous. And I don't want to see this happen to him again. And I don't want to see it become a bigger problem. The surgery is always going to be an option for him if it does happen again. So I can see the temptation to just come back and and try to play it out and hope that it doesn't happen again and then maybe have the surgery in the off season. But knowing the pain that and the not just the physical pain, but the 
mental strain of knowing that your shoulder might pop out at any second sucks, man. And for a guy who swings so hard and has to do it so often, it's nerve-wracking. So, Tipping pitchers, listeners, take a shot anytime a baseball player dislocates a shoulder and Bobby gets on tipping pitches and says, me and him, yep, me and him, yep. I know what it's like. I do. It's terrible. For anybody, yeah, I believe there I believe there it. has to there might be at least one other listener listening to this podcast right now who's dislocated their shoulder. DM us because we can commiserate together because it's truly you never forget. You never forget. You think about it. I think about it probably every couple of days of my life. <laughs> I'm picking up the dog. I'm like, ooh, shoulder felt a little weird right there. <laughs> All right, Musgrove, no hitter. Musgrove, no hitter. Man. He's holding his pin from like the fourth inning too. He sure, chuck- he pain. sure was chucking it. You know, he was sure chucking it. He was pitching out there. Yep, he was throwing it that in was, front of a packed, was packed so- house in Texas. <laughs> oh god! Uh, no, I thought that this story was really cool for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was the first hit no hitter in Padres history. Number two, Musgrove. This was only his second start in a Padres uniform. Um, he is a San Diego native. He grew up as a Padres fan. He just got traded there this offseason. And I, I imagine what it must have felt like for him, how much of a kid he must have felt like getting traded back to his hometown team, going out there, wearing number 44 in honor of Jake Peavy, his favorite player growing up, which good choice because Jake Peavy dealt when he was in San Diego. And throwing a no-hitter for that team. I just, I mean, it's an awesome moment. Baseball, bro. Baseball. This it's an awesome moment and also feeds into my conspiracy theory, quasi conspiracy theory that like none of these stories are real. Cause like every time something amazing like this happens, they're like, he grew up watching this team. He was, you know, he had so-and-so's Jersey growing up. Like every single time anything heartwarming happens in baseball. I'm like, there's a small part of me that's like, there's no way. Right. Yeah. It's a little too perfect. So what you're saying is Todd Fraser is not from New Jersey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you say it enough times and you stop actually believing it, you know? Shout out to Joe Musgrove. Um, the Padres remain fun despite the fact that Tatis is not playing, which is cool. Facts. Yeah. That's why you go out there and you sign the best shortstop in the KBO so that he can be the guy to field the ground ball on the no-hitter when you've just lost your generational superstar face of baseball, Fernando Tatis. Yeah. Damn. Team building is good. Uh, what's up for it. you this week? Oh, the this is a bit of a down and an up uh, because that's how the A's started the season was down and up. Yeah, man, they really just forgot how to play baseball there they for suck. a few days. <laughs> they, it was just it was bad. like not great. Yeah, never good when your team loses six to two and you're like, wow, this is the best they've looked all year. <laughs> But they started winning, so maybe it's okay. I don't know. They're historically slow starters. That 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 phrase doesn't bring you a lot of comfort when it literally looks like they maybe forgot to how to throw baseballs to professional baseball players. Yeah, and how to hit baseballs from professional baseball throwers. But you know, they made it through. At the same time, though, if you told me that they had a weekend series against the Dodgers in August and got pounded like thirty to seven. It wouldn't matter. It would. Yeah. There are just a lot of like historical reasons to be like, no team has ever done this, this, or this. And I'm like, no team has ever done it in baseball until a team does it. And so we just move on. Yeah. No team ever has to face the Astros and then the Dodgers 
and then the Astros. That doesn't seem super fair <laughs> as a way to start the season. Uh, the Cubs are playing the Pirates right now. Why couldn't we play the Pirates? I know, the Cubs are bad. Um, you're right. And slightly related to this was when the Mets lost on opening day, and they were like, well, they lost opening day in 69 and 86, so this means World Series win confirmed. Yeah, and I'm like, they also lost opening go. day 40 other times. <laughs> People take whatever they want. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Cubs because my next up this week is Andrew Chafin. <laughs> who, I mean, he's become a little bit of a meme lord on Chicago Cubs Twitter. Not that I'm deeply embedded in Chicago Chicago Cubs Twitter, but there have been a couple articles written about it. And he's just a funny, interesting guy. He uh, tweeted uh, on Friday. He tweeted on Friday. Hey, Cubs fans, I'm looking to buy an old beater car for like 2K to drive around the city because my truck is way too big for the narrow streets here. Must be manual transition. Haha, ha, cut me a good deal and we can mix in freak tickets throughout the off se- or throughout the season. And then like people were replying to him being like, "Hey man, look what I got." And he was like, "DM me." <laughs> this guy is really trying to buy a car off Twitter. I love that. I uh, there's nothing like I have no other overarching thoughts about the state of baseball based on that other than that just it's really funny. Please sell yeah. me car. I mean, you know what? This is the this is the future that liberals want is major league baseball players just talking with fans saying, Hey, got a beat up sports car that I can I can buy. Someone said, What kind of truck do you have? And he said F four fifty crew cab. Four fifty. Yeah. What is he towing? Four fifty? <laughs> That's a big boy. I mean, I guess he's I don't towing, know, man. He's he's towing got a lot of, lot of gear. You know? Yeah, though, there you go. A lot of gear. He has seven thousand baseball bats that he's towing behind him. Um, very funny. Andrew Chafin, good tweet. Alex, what's next up for you this week? Next up for me is the one thousand eight hundred twenty-four words written by one Dan McLaughlin, also known as Baseball Crank on Twitter. Noted shit stain on uh, on the online conservative community. He wrote these words for the National Review, noted noted shit stain on the online conservative blogging community, on how Major League Baseball should really check themselves on, on calling out Georgia for their voting law, because you know who's not so great on voting themselves? The MLB All-Star Game. <laughs> what the hell's going on over there? <laughs> what? Again, 1,824 words on how Major League Baseball really needs to check themselves because, quote, the, the All-Star game is no icon of honest voting. Oh, he's saying that there's not enough voter integrity in the All-Star game? That's, that is correct, folks. There are any numbers of ironies to Major League Baseball using the All-Star game as a club to demand that Georgia write election laws exactly the way Georgia Democrats want them written. One of those ironies is that the All-Star game itself is a notorious festival of open ballot box stuffing. And sometimes worse, with a long history of controversy about the integrity of the vote in which MLB has battled for years to keep up with efforts to abuse its voting system. He goes on and cites like nine examples of when like all-star voting was not like down to the letter of the law. Like, yeah, I hated that time they voted in each row, despite the fact that he didn't play in any games that year. Yeah, man. I hate the fact that they're giving every team a representative from to who can go to the all-star game because what are we doing participation trophies now what we're giving every place a representative yeah that's fucking what, that's why don't we just give them two 
And then there will be 100 total. Yeah. And then states like Wyoming will have two, while states 100 times the size of it also only have two. (laughs) (laughs) I just like the fact that he thought this up, wrote, once again, I will say it again, 1,824 words on this. You really and hung up on the word count. What are you, his editor? Publisher was like, okay. Well, the, the funny thing about it is that I think actually more of the words are not his own. You know, it's like the old like blogging thing where you're writing something, but you're just like quoting other blogs and then calling it your own thing. Yeah. He manages to end this with saying, now the voting system we use for choosing our government is run differently, has much more serious stakes, and prevents different challenges than the MLB All-Star game. So... Oh, oh, it is oh. technically completely different. Voting for yes, our government it. has different challenges than voting for the MLB All Star Game. Damn, foiled again, Georgia Democrats. Hey, man, human nature is a constant. People will try to game your voting systems if you do nothing to protect them, and you'll end up having to work ever harder to win back public confidence in the integrity of your elections. Hmm, he's got a point there, Bobby. When the All-Star game comes around this year, we're going to have to have a real conversation about whether or not Salvador Perez deserves to be there or not. <laughs> he does. Sal is cool. I like Sal. Yeah. Uh, I okay, final for me. Uh, there was a video circulating yesterday of Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Albert Pujols chatting and then uh, it appearing that Vlad Guerrero Jr. told Pujols that, his, that Guerrero's teammate Santiago Espinal wanted to uh, meet Pujols and they had never met before. Espinal comes to the frame and you can just tell this is like meeting his childhood hero, essentially. I, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but Espinal's from the DR. Pujols is from the DR. Espinal is 26. Pujols is 41. So, you know, 15 years ago when Pujols made his MLB debut or whatever, or 20 years ago when Pujols made his MLB debut, Espinal was six. And he probably grew up watching this guy. And Pools is one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And it appears that this was Espinal's first time meeting him. And, you know, Pools gives him the classic tap on the shoulder. Like, you know, good luck with your career, kid. And I think it's so... It's just a joy to watch these moments. Um, you know, something that we've sort of like ham-handedly discussed on the podcast in the past is like the idea that what makes baseball so cool is that throughout the thread of it, it passes along from player to player and there are connections amongst uh, different generations that make it significant from one era of a baseball team to another era of a baseball team. But also something that sort of falls under that same umbrella is like a guy getting to the majors and seeing someone that he considered an icon and getting to play against him, meet him. And moments like with Pujols where you've had such a long and storied career and then a younger guy like Espinal definitely fall under that category and it's it's really cool that we get to watch moments like that i love that vlad jr is just the connector here too you know know, like he is already one of the coolest players in baseball just like (laughs) right and just like his buddy buddy with pujols right like i mean for good reason right when your dad is vladimir guerrero people are probably gonna know who you are too but i i think it's cool that like you said, Vlad is kind of using that that uh, relationship that he already has to kind of broaden broaden the the reach, extend that to to younger players. Baseball is cool, man. It's a good sport. Baseball is cool. What's your final up this week? 
my final up, now that we've determined baseball's cool, it's I'm not going to talk about baseball anymore. Uh, Taylor Swift released her uh, re-recorded album, Fearless. This guy. Hey, man, it's an, it's an up. I don't know what you... I don't know what you want me to say. It's good. It's really interesting. It's an interesting. Just no baseball tie here. You're just talking about fearless. Oh, oh no, yeah, I am just talking. Okay, about okay, all right. I'm, like, I'm strapping I'm in. Like I'm putting kidding. my yeah. taking my baseball hat on off and putting my Taylor Swift hat on. Let's do it. Yeah, put put on your cowboy hat. Let's let's get it. It's good, man. It's really interesting hearing a you know 31 year old woman sing songs from when she was 18, 19, 20, and uh, you know having the the kind of underlying narrative about reclaiming her uh, her autonomy right right yeah. going and going up against big big scooter brawn uh-huh it's cool it's good it is good i enjoyed the album uh i think obviously a really interesting element of it is her positionality towards some of the songs and some of the lyrics and especially some of the songs that were never released you know they're, how is she characterizing them as they're they're from the vault i believe is how she's calling yeah. them uh you know, Fearless has some of her classic vocal performances, like Forever and Always, for example, is a song that a- as she's aged a little more, the tone of her voice has changed a little bit and she can't quite get to some of those like uh, the peaks and the vocal strain that she was getting to on those earlier recorded masters. Uh, mm-hmm. So it changes the song a little bit. And, and it, I feel like in some of those instances, it tones it back. But then also in other instances, there's like more of a body to the vocal. And yeah, her voice is really mature. Yeah. So uh, I enjoyed it. Shout out to all our Taylor Swift heads an hour and a half into the podcast that know that Hell we got, yeah. we have some real critical opinions about Taylor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's fascinating that this is a pure, you know, largely a business decision that she has masterfully turned into this kind of sentimental project that fans are getting behind, right? Even yeah. though it's largely about ownership of her catalog. But fans are like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll do it. I'll just stream the new version because we stand Taylor. As a larger idea, I'm like fully in support of people just re-recording songs, like just doing new versions of songs. There, you know, one of my favorite artists is Kevin Devine. He has like four different versions of many of my favorite of his songs, and sometimes I'll accidentally put not my favorite version on, and I'll be like, oh, this is slightly different, and he changed the lyric here and. You know, there's definitely heavier electric guitar here than there was in the first time around. And the fungibility of an artist's relationship to their own songs is something that I've always found really interesting. And I don't I don't begrudge anybody who wants to go back and retrack all of their songs. Make new masters of every song that you've ever made. It's your fucking song. Yeah, absolutely. I love the idea of art. Of, of pieces of music as this kind of living piece of art. That was a conversation around Kanye West when he dropped The Life of Pablo. And then fans were like, hey, this song kind of sucks. And he was like, I'll change it. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'll, f- I'll fix it for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's cool. Most of the Taylor songs are just the same exact song, though. <laughs> I did they notice are. that. The shoot didn't change very much. I wonder if she'll no, become older it, about that on later maybe, albums. But, like, but it's so interesting that like it really is down to a T. Like it's yeah. really well done. When when she released Love Story, I took the old version and the new version and panned one to the left side and panned one to the right side just You're to listen to how close <laughs> they are. Yes. How I close know. are they? Like really, you couldn't like, really tell? No, like spot on. Wow. It's incredible. 
That's interesting too, because not all of the instrumental tracks are the same. And the mix right. is different. So Yeah, for sure. It's weird. That's weird then. I noticed that I found like some of the the violin tracks were not quite as uh I don't, I don't want to say piercing because that has a negative co- connotation, but the mix is slightly different to sort of accommodate the maturation of her vocal where she mm-hmm. is not quite as, you know, piercing and emotional in the vocal on some of them. And so the violin yeah. is also kind of like slotting in alongside of her. I don't know. It's uh, go listen to the new fearless. Yeah, man, that's we're good. just and Taylor maybe, Swift stands on the podcast now. I mean, we kind of are. It's an open secret <laughs> at this point, right? Maybe we should start letting baseball players go back and relive their finest moments. You know, I think that's cool. That's what we that did during nice. the pandemic last last year. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> uh, okay, that that's gonna do it for this week's episode of Tipping Pitches. Uh, anything to leave the people with other than go buy Taylor Swift's album on iTunes or something? This is not SpawnCon. <laughs> no, what if it is? What if it was? You would accept money from Taylor Swift to advertise for her album, right? Yeah, I mean, we already do it, right? So, like, yeah. she just wants to pay me to publicly profess my enjoyment of her music. That's really There's really no lift there on my part. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening, everybody. If you want to reach out to us, it's tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to leave us a voicemail, it's 785-422-5881. We are going to eventually get back to the voicemails, uh, but you know, the first couple weeks of the season has been a lot to talk about. But we do want to get back to the voicemails, so seriously, we would really appreciate you calling in 785-422-5881. And we will talk to you next week. Everybody, uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya.